You're listening to the COVID-19 Update, a podcast from the CSIS Global Health Policy Center focused on the science and policy implications of the outbreak. I'm Andrew Schwartz of the Center for Strategic and International Studies, and I'm joined by my colleague, Steve Morrison, to discuss the latest on COVID-19. Today, we're thrilled to be joined again by Dr. Alicia Kramer. She was with us in early July in an earlier podcast to talk about what it was like as a young OBGYN doctor in Atlanta working in both public and private hospital, principally with neonatal care, with pregnancies, deliveries, especially with poor black young women, and you shared some very, very vivid moments with us during that podcast. For our audience, just to remind you that Dr. Alicia Kramer attended Georgetown University in her senior year, interned with us. We were so struck by her, we recruited her to come work with us for four years, and she did some groundbreaking work on gender, reproductive health, and sexual behavior, sexual rights. And she went on to Emory Medical School and took a stint for a year in London at the London School of Economics. Yeah, but also, Steve, you got to say, before she left CSI, she also kept all us very sane. She kept us all very focused. And particularly, she kept you and me, Steve, very smart because she kept us, you know, very informed about all the things that we were doing. And we've never had a better global health team than when Alicia was working so with you. So, we're... Delighted to have you back with us, Alicia. <laughs> and uh, you still have lots of fans. And so we're asking you to kind of come back seven months later. A lot has happened. I might add for our listeners, I mean, in this insane period of the pandemic, growing, surging, and you're living through that, you're also living through an electoral campaign in Georgia. Alicia's husband, Jonathan Osof, just recently was sworn in as the new senator, Democratic senator from the state of Georgia. So we'll get to that experience of being in that insane world later in our discussion here. But we want to start by asking you about, we're now one year into this pandemic, COVID-19, and you are almost halfway through your four-year residency. What are your big reflections? Share with us one or two, maybe three of the big reflections on what this has meant in practicing medicine? What's the new normal? Let's start with that. Well, Steve and Andrew, thank you so much for having me back. It's wonderful to get to sit down with you guys again. And it's remotely, of course. I think when we talked back in July, you know, none of us could have guessed quite where we would have been now speaking at the end of January in terms of this pandemic, in terms of the state of our country politically and in the world. But here we are, and we're still in the throes of this pandemic and really at a significant stage. We are seeing some of the highest case rates in Georgia over this month. We are seeing some of the highest case rates in our pregnant patients. But we are also seeing adequate PPE, whereas that was still somewhat of a struggle, I think, when we talked last time. And we're also seeing the introduction of the COVID-19 vaccine. So I think there are a lot of new factors coming into play with the pandemic and a lot of hope right now that we might actually be starting to turn a corner. But as it stands, we're still very much in the height of this pandemic. And I think what many kind of refer to as a second wave, although arguably whether um, there was any real differentiation between these two waves is 
you know, we pretty much just had high rates all the way through. But in terms of what you're saying, the big takeaways for me, I think, are one, we've entered into a new normal. Going into the hospital day to day, we've adopted. We now have new policies and protocols. And so going to work for the most part feels normal. But at the same time, there's this huge disconnect when you take a stand back um, and really look at what the day-to-day is like now with, you know, full PPE, swabbing all of our patients for COVID, pregnant patients coming into the hospital for delivery and only having one person with them during such an important time in their life, the complications that are arising from COVID uh, infection in pregnant patients. And so you take a look at all that and it is so not normal. And so there's there's a disconnect right now between getting through the day and the day-to-day feeling normal. And yet what we're going through has just been something no one has ever seen before. No one's ever experienced. And we're learning as we go. Um, but it's, it's a pretty striking time. I assume you're sensing that, yes, there's been some innovation, some new technologies, some new approaches that are going to stay with us in, into the future. But this pandemic is going to be with us for some time, too, even when we get into herd immunity and things go back to some measure of normality. The behavioral protections are still going to be terribly important. So we're looking at a long-term lasting changes in medicine, aren't we? I think we are absolutely looking at long-lasting changes in medicine. You know, it's almost seems strange that we wouldn't wear masks on a regular basis with day-to-day patient interactions. I mean, certainly if there was any concern for infection or illness, you would put a mask on. But, you know, our population, largely healthy, young, pregnant patients, masks were not a thing we were wearing with every patient interaction. And and that just seems so foreign now. And, And I don't think that's going anywhere. And I think you can even look to some of the Asian countries to see that those policies and protocols were already in place um, in their healthcare settings even before COVID and, and perhaps contributed to why they were able to get better control over this virus at an earlier stage. But yes, I totally agree that we are going to be continuing to wear masks and have substantial PPE, social distancing. I mean, who knows when we'll be allowing more guests, um, visitors into the hospital to see patients. I mean, that's some of the, the most heartbreaking stories. They're coming from patients that, you know, and families who are, are unable to say goodbye to loved ones in person. So certainly some changes that'll stay with us, but but I hope for some others that will hopefully will return to a little bit more of a, a sense of normal. You seem to have a certain optimism. I mean, you're acknowledging in a very granular and realistic way how tough this remains, right? We're not we're in a terrible period right now. But you don't project the idea of being completely exhausted and overwhelmed or feeling unsafe. You seem to be suggesting that in the big picture, we're moving in the right direction. There's still solid barriers, but people are relieved. Staff are resilient. They're not collapsing. You're not seeing, I don't get the sense that you're seeing people being pulled out of action because they've been, they're forced into quarantine in large numbers because they've been exposed or infected. Is that an accurate kind of impression? Yeah, I mean, I, I think it is always a balance. I think that certainly healthcare workers are fatigued. I think we're also used to working under those conditions that at baseline healthcare workers are stretched thin and are used to digging deep to be able to cover shifts and fulfill their duties. So yes, I think there's certainly a sense of fatigue um, and exhaustion. But no, I, I, we have not, at least where I have been working, have not been seeing providers being pulled out of work for quarantine um, at such numbers that we are having trouble staying afloat and providing coverage within our services. So, And you're not seeing your ICU beds hit 99% 
so yes, our, our ICUs have been full and there have been some instances that, that have been scary because we have been told that we don't have any ICU beds available and we often have pre- pregnant patients who have significant complications that require ICU stays. So that is definitely have been moments of fear when you don't know whether you're going to have to care for provide an ICU level of care on a labor and delivery service because there are no ICU beds available. So yes, that is all certainly there. But I think that goes back to a little bit of We've been dealing with this for months, you know, and that, that, that almost feels like a normal. And again, when you bring it up and you, we talk about it, it's like, of course, that's not normal. Of course, that's really scary. But it's also now what we've been dealing with for, for many months and have been, been making work as heartbreaking and scary as it, as it can be. Alicia, it's so great to talk with you. One thing we didn't mention when we were talking at the introduction is since we spoke with you, you actually had COVID yourself. And, you know, thank goodness you made it through. I remember talking over email with your husband, John, while he was campaigning, while you had COVID and it was scary, but, you know, thank goodness you made it through and and you're working and you're helping people every day. There's something I want to ask you about this disease that now that you've experienced it personally, you've experienced it with your patients, you're seeing it every day on the front lines. What is it? about the vaccine refusal and vaccine hesitancy issue, people seem still, you know, to be refusing to want to take this vaccine, nervous about it. Why do you think that is when when the facts are right out in front of us? Nobody wants to get this disease. Nobody wants to die from it. Um, Nobody wants to see their relatives and loved ones suffer from it. But yet we're dealing with vaccine hesitancy and refusal. How do you square that circle? I'm not sure we can, except to say that, of course, we know there's been a long history and a pretty recent history specifically of, of a whole lot of hesitancy um, and distrust and mistrust of vaccines, not just for the COVID vaccine, but across the whole spectrum of infectious diseases. You're absolutely right. We are seeing people who are hesitant, refusing the vaccine. I think at the healthcare provider level, many of the doctors and the residents most of them, I would say, have all now gotten the vaccine within my hospital system. We are seeing a lot of um, hesitancy from nursing staff and some of the other providers in the hospital. And that's been a little bit shocking because, again, we're coming into contact with COVID-positive patients so frequently on a day-to-day basis that it, you know, in in many of our minds seems like a no-brainer. Why wouldn't you get this vaccine? But I think this is something we touched on when we spoke over the summer, which is that there is wide distrust of the healthcare system in general, and especially among minority populations, black patients who have every right to be mistrustful because the medical system has done some really awful things over the years in, in the name of science that are just so atrocious that it is, it's really no surprise that, that patients are doubtful and uncertain of whether it's in their best interest, whether the healthcare system is working in their best interest and that this vaccine is really going to protect them instead of hurt them. So I think it's a longer conversation and, and a whole lot more work that physicians and the healthcare system has to do to regain the trust of, of Americans, um, and especially those populations that have been abused over the years. Again, this is addressing racism in medicine. So we have a lot of work to do. I I hope that we will continue to move towards greater vaccination of the general population and people working in the hospital, because I do think that'll be an important step to take to get control of this virus. But the fears are real, um, and we need to get 
to the root of what's causing them and to provide people reassurance and whatever they need to feel like they can accept accept this vaccine. Is this mostly a communications issue to you? I mean, you know, the issues that you're talking about with racism in medicine are issues that most of us, you know, have no knowledge of, have never heard of, you know, can't even, you know, make any sense of. So are these public awareness campaigns? Are these, you know, things that people need to hear from their, you know, government officials, from people they, you know, look to in culture? What, you know, what, is that what we're talking about here? I think public awareness definitely plays a role. I think conversations, neighbors to neighbors, really, you know, the the, the folks that people will most trust are those who, who they feel closest to, who are in their communities. But again, like you said, it's, it's going to be longer, more forward-looking work to really rebuild trust within the medical community um, with all of our patient populations. So yes, some of that might be a quick fix, Band-Aid solution. Let's make sure we're getting people protected now. But looking into the future, we're going to need to do some much deeper work as providers and as a nation to, to rebuild trust in our healthcare system. Well, you know that President Biden has appointed Professor Marcella Nunez-Smith as the first advisor to the president on these inequities. And the question now is, what's the strategy? And how do you operationalize this? How do you move this forward? I mean, this is an unprecedented step that's been taken for a very complicated set of problems. What would your advice be to uh, Marcella Nunez-Smith? Yeah, it's a, it's a great question. And I will admit that I am so granular in the day to day in the hospital and providing direct patient care that I haven't had a whole lot of time to step back and, and look at the, the a thousand foot policy view. But I think probably the most immediate is making sure that supply is meeting demand for the vaccines. Cause even though there may be people who are not yet ready to get the vaccine, there are still plenty who do and making sure our supply chains and the availability of the vaccines is there for the patients and the population who are, who are ready to get vaccinated. I know in Georgia, they're already starting to vaccinate patients over age 65, and that should only start to expand. And so making sure that the supply chain and the supply is available um, to get these vaccines distributed as, as quickly and efficiently as possible. You know, they, as the vaccines came forward, you know, just to use the District of Columbia example, there were really shocking discrepancies in the uptake, right? When they did the first rollout over in Ward 7 and 8, there were like 2,500 folks from the wealthier, wider wards that migrated over to get vaccinated. And the numbers of of the black citizens of those wards that got the vaccine were minuscule. I mean, under 100 versus 2,500 people coming. And they had to make some pretty rapid corrective actions, being very proactive about outreach, but also kind of protecting the access and then intensifying the engagement with the communities. And it's begun to turn around, but it It was really a hard lesson, and I'm sure that's being replicated all over in your hospitals, but in the communities and and all across. May I ask you, while we're talking about this sort of messaging, uh, we had Celine Gounder uh, this week do a podcast with us that we just posted, and she was on the president's transitional advisory group. And she was talking, she was very emphatic about how what's needed right now to connect to Americans of all description, including those so at 74 million that voted for President Trump, that there needs to be a direct set of messages coming from health providers and scientists and public health experts. And there needs to be a sort of toning down the, there needs to be an approach that is to unify and to heal and to calm 
the waters and get people focused on the nature of this and what the options are. What, what's your reaction to that kind of ethos that's coming through very strongly from President Biden? Well, I think overall, the consensus from healthcare providers is the same, right? That we are all in agreement on what the best steps for it at the broad high level. I think over the last four years, we've kind of seen the microphone been given to some individuals, some providers, or or even non-health experts who are speaking on health issues that are whose voices were being um, amplified, but weren't necessarily speaking for the, you know, provider's consensus or the medical association's consensus on some of these issues. So I think part of what needs to happen is to just to give that microphone back to the experts to really be speaking on the issues that they have studied for years, for decades, and know so well, and to be implementing policy based on the science. And so I, I think once we can kind of streamline the messages and get and get the medical experts and the science experts back speaking on these issues and being being the ones driving driving our medical and healthcare decisions that will hopefully start to see some some moves in the right direction and and hopefully start to to rebuild trust as well. Have we learned a lot in the last year about pregnancy and how COVID operates and how to manage most effectively women who are pregnant? Unfortunately, not really. I mean, there are so many studies ongoing right now looking at, at COVID infection and pregnancy and effects on maternal and neonatal health. But it is still such early days to really see even immediate but certainly long-term effects uh, of COVID-19 infection. In our hospital systems, we are we're collecting cord blood from deliveries as well as maternal blood and samples from the placenta to study all of this and to really get a better sense of, of what we need to be looking out for and how we can be counseling patients. So the short answer is no. We we really still don't know very much. I mean, we do know that like flu, COVID infection and pregnancy can cause some significant morbidity. But besides for that, it, it, it's hard to say. There are some more anecdotal pieces of evidence that have been impacting our clinical decision making. We're really kind of getting into the weeds. Liver enzymes are something we look for in pregnancy. And when they're elevated can be a sign of preeclampsia, which is a significant disease in pregnancy that can cause pretty awful maternal morbidity and mortality. And we can also see an elevation in these liver enzymes and COVID infection as well. And so, you know, these are some of some clinical signs that we have to try and pick apart to be making decisions for patient care that, of course, we, we were not having to, to think about prior to this pandemic. And you are able to offer women, pregnant women vaccines now? The American College of Obstetrics and Gynecology has come out with a kind of a soft answer on that, that it's really up to the patient and the provider in consultation on, on whether they decide to proceed with vaccination in pregnancy. We obviously don't have the evidence yet to show one way or the another whether it is safe in pregnancy but we don't have any evidence that it is not safe. That's a pretty tough call. It's a very tough call. Uh, and again, we can get a little bit more in the weeds on, you know, what vaccines are safe in pregnancy, what are not. Part of the balance that patients have to think about is, you know, the risks associated with COVID-19 infection in pregnancy versus the risk of the vaccine. We give flu vaccines to pregnant patients all the time. In fact, we recommend it. We give the tetanus, diphtheria, and pertussis vaccine in pregnancy all the time. The vaccines we don't give are, are live virus vaccines, so things like MMR and varicella. But this is not a virus vaccine. So again, um, not a whole lot of evidence one way or the other. And it's right now up to, to patients and providers in consultation, whether they, they choose to proceed with vaccination. How profoundly did you getting COVID yourself affect you? And are you still feeling any of the effects 
of having it? Totally shocked me, came out of the blue. I mean, maybe it shouldn't have just given where we yeah. were um, in the pandemic. I mean, because you're in the hospital every single day. And it wasn't even just like you were in one hospital. You were in many hospitals because you're, you know, you're a provider who's working with people across the city of Atlanta. Yeah, exactly. I, you know, it came on first, it was a sore throat and a cough. And then I lost my smell, which of course is one of the telltale signs. And overall, I will count myself very lucky. I was incredibly fatigued. You know, we had a pulse ox I kept checking to make sure my oxygen saturations were up, but I never had a fever. Um, I never had any of the GI symptoms. And while I was incredibly fatigued, I continued to work actually from home. I just, I felt guilty that I was not able to help out my colleagues who were having to, you know, fill my shoes in the hospital while I was gone. So I was actually doing remote telemedicine while I was at home in quarantine. And I was exhausted and fatigued, but uh, somehow pushed through and continued to provide some patient care. And my recovery was actually pretty swift as well in terms of I did not have any prolonged effects of, ex- of that exhaustion fatigue. The only thing that has continued to linger is my loss of smell. Um, so we are now, what, six, seven, eight months out, and I have only minimal sense of smell. And my taste has been actually totally off now that my smell is starting to come back. It's totally throwing my, my sense of taste off. So still dealing with that, but but still counting my blessings. So we're so blown away by you because we worked with you and, you know, you're one of our all-time favorite colleagues and we want to learn about your, you know, your experience as a doctor dealing with COVID. And, you know, now I'm sure you're dealing with the thought of a variant of COVID coming at you. And I want to get to that in a second. But, you know, our listeners are going to kill us if we don't ask you, what has it been like dealing with your your profession, but also dealing with your husband running for United States Senate, getting into a runoff, and then defying all odds and, and winning? What's that been like? Yeah, yeah, no, I, I mean, I think we can all agree that 2020 has been incredibly surreal. Um, and so I think this was only further, further evidence supporting that this has been a wild year for so many reasons. Everyone was working overtime in Georgia and it was so remarkable, so rewarding to see everyone's hard work paid off. And I'm talking specifically about black Georgians and black women in Georgia who made their voices heard and really sacrificed a lot to turn our state blue and to get some people in power who I think will really represent the people and bring some positive change to Georgia. Georgia. But I, I will not lie, it was a tough, tough road. It was working incredibly long hours, supporting my husband, John, continuing to work in the hospital and trying to, to be present for such an important time in, in Georgia's history and time in, in my family's, you know, life. So incredibly grateful that that we made it happen. Stacey Abrams and Keisha Lance Bottoms and the people that I think you were alluding to there who, who really, you know, helped move this along, pretty cool people and pretty effective. Oh, absolutely. Incredibly inspiring. And yeah, I mean, it's, I think the times I I get most emotional are thinking about some of those women who have really made this happen all the way up to our new vice president, Kamala Harris. It really, it means the world to women in Georgia and across the country, little girls. It's it's just fantastic. How did the pandemic and the overall debate around healthcare figure in the race? Here you are, you're out on the road while also practicing, but you're out on the road observing in the midst of a pandemic and in in the midst of an insanely unpredictable and difficult electoral competition. So what what did you observe with respect to COVID-19 and the debate on policy for health? 
Yeah, no, I, that was a huge part, a huge part of the campaign because it's, it's a huge part of people's lives right now and it's what they care about. I think Georgia already has a healthcare crisis. We have way too many counties, rural counties that have so little access to healthcare. The one county in particular, Cuthbert County, back in October as the pandemic was raging, had their hospital closed down so that the people of, of Cuthbert had to travel an hour and a half just to get to an emergency room. Um, so we're, we're talking some really like life or death situations for, for residents of Georgia. Georgia, resulting from the real lack of, of access to health care. Um, so that is a huge, a huge part of what voters cared about. And then, of course, the pandemic has only heightened the, the intense need for access to health care. And that's not even touching on maternal and child health, where, you know, over half of counties in Georgia don't have access to an OBGYN. And we know Georgia has one of the highest rates of maternal mortality in the country and often the highest. So we have a lot of work to do in Georgia, addressing the health care needs of the state and that has only continued to figure more prominently in the setting of this pandemic. And you've got the problem of the politicization of masking and social distancing and avoiding congregate settings, which the electoral cycle only worsened and intensified that. How easy is it going to be, in your view, to roll that back and get people to come to their senses on their own terms about the wisdom of these behavioral measures which are as important, if not more important, than vaccines? Yeah, I that is an incredibly important question. And I think that spans across the country and, and goes to kind of what Andrew was saying about needing to rebuild trust. You know, there was our country is, is split 50-50 for the most part right now. And, and we want everyone to come together to work for the betterment of our country and the health of our country. And I, I hope that we will get there quickly, but I think it's going to be ongoing conversations, rebuilding trust, messaging and showing showing really open arms and acceptance um, and a willingness to listen because we can't close off to those who who disagree with us and don't share our opinions and our points of view because we're not we're not going to get anywhere that way we have, we have a lot of work to do so we like to close these conversations by coming back to the question of what gives you the greatest hope and optimism and strength looking into the future i mean you are fundamentally an optimist this is a very difficult situation, but as you pointed out, there's been some positive turns, but it's still, there's still multiple barriers. There's great unknowns. The variants are, are scaring people and it's creating new sense of urgency and the like. What gives you the greatest hope? I think, I mean, there's a lot of little things that are coming together. I think having policies and protocols in place, access to PPE, the rollout of the vaccine, having leadership in place that will listen to medical and health experts. I think as a OBGYN, as someone who works in the health field, I think that feels the most important, that having the experts helping to guide policy decisions is really going to be the answer uh, towards protecting Americans and containing and controlling this pandemic. And then I think ultimately having having faith that we can get there, that we have come through a really dark year and people are ready to see some change. And so I just feel optimistic and, and hopeful that, we, that we're going to get there, that there's enough will and motivation that everyone's feeling right now to do what's best for ourselves and for our country so we can have a, a healthier, a happier and less socially distanced 2021 when it is safe to do so. Thank you. Well, we hope we'll see more of you in Washington now that you have some foothold here. I know your your professional life will remain centered in Atlanta, but we'll 
We'll look forward to seeing more of you here, and we'll see more of you in Atlanta as things open up. And we wish you all the best, and thank you so much for for spending the time with us. And please convey our congratulations to Jonathan. Absolutely. Thank you so much. Wonderful to speak with you both. Thanks, Alicia.